Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. As we move fast through this exposition of the Gospel of Mark, a few of you got it, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Start a new chapter this morning. The title of today's sermon is The Coming Glory. Let me read our, our passage starting in verse 1. And Jesus was saying to them, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after his come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing overshadowing them, And a voice came out out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Let us pray. Father, we again thank you for the morning, drawing our our hearts to a text that, that encourages us. As we see your shepherding hand, you, you love your disciples to, to bring them along to help them understand your kingdom purposes, the reason why you came. You give them encouragement to press on, and Father, you do the same for us even today. Pray for understanding. Of course, with the Spirit's help, Spirit, we desire for you to to illumine our minds and our hearts towards the things of godliness and the things of what the text says. Be with your servant. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our passage today is one that is much needed for our theology and understanding of Jesus and his messianic purposes. Remember just a few short verses ago, Peter has just identified Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one, the sent one. And Jesus says, you're right. 
Peter got the question right. He, he had to have been on cloud nine. He no doubt was rejoicing with the exhortation that Jesus said, you did well. From that moment, Jesus went on to teach them the reason why, the purpose, why the Messiah had to come. And he told them that he must suffer and be rejected and killed and rise again three days later. Peter, speaking for the disciples again, he, he took Jesus aside to correct him, only for Jesus to put Peter in his place. And in essence, telling him to get his theology in line with God's. Jesus then outlined for us the consequences of true discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. In short, the king of the world calls his true citizens to deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow him. Jesus, being the king, his true disciples or followers are his people, and this place would eventually be an eternal rule with him sitting on the throne. That's what it means to, to understand when Jesus speaks about the kingdom. He's talking about himself reigning, the people following, and a place where he reigns forever, a new heaven and a new earth. And in light of where his disciples are at, he gives them, at least three of them, a, a glimpse of this coming glory. That's pretty remarkable as you see the flow from the end of chapter 8 into where we are in chapter 9 and knowing that they were kind of confused to some degree. They know that, that they needed to follow him, that he was the Messiah, but yet they're still a little confused exactly how this is all going to play out. The least they knew is that suffering was coming. They, they saw it demonstrated as Jesus interacted with the crowds. They saw the religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they all attacked him. So no doubt they were trying in their own hearts and minds trying to figure, what does he mean by all this? So knowing the suffering was coming, the disciples needed to have the strength and the endurance to get through it. I think this is the joy of our shepherd. Knowing who is following him, knowing who's around him, knowing that as the great shepherd, he's going to pick them up, let them know that everything's going to be okay. To help them. And in so doing and helping them, the Lord does something for them that is just flat out awesome when you read the text. He literally moves their faith that, yes, you are the Messiah. I don't understand all these purposes to sight. That I'm going to give you a glimpse of my coming glory. Jesus knew he had to encourage them in light of his coming death and resurrection, and he gives them a view of what his kingdom will look like for eternity. So as Jesus continues to unfold his messianic purpose, he gives us hope that his death was not going to be the end. 
I don't know about you, but when I read verse 31, and as Jesus unfolded this whole death and suffering and dying, even though he says, in three days I will rise again, I think that we stop there. What do you mean, dying? What do you mean, death? And we forget the very end of that verse tells us that he will rise again. And so he continues to give them hope. He draws them along. He, he is the great teacher as well as the great shepherd, and he knows exactly what they need in this moment. And he literally just is going to show them that there's going to come a time where the kingdom of Christ will have its king and he will reign. And he smits this truth by giving us a glimpse and literally, this is four views, and they're there in your outline. They're to kind of, put, kind of be markers for us as we walk through this passage. But he cements this truth by giving us a glimpse of four views of the Christ's coming kingdom. All wrapped up in glory. All magnificent. magnificent can I see it? All beautiful. So let's look at these four views, four pictures. The first is in verse 1, and it's a promise. Jesus literally tells them that some of you are going to see this coming glory even before you die. Look at verse 1. Jesus was saying to them, speaking about the disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The Greek is intensive here. It's meaning that Jesus was having this ongoing discussion about what is going to happen, and, and, and no doubt they had questions. The text doesn't necessarily tell us all that, but it, the, the nature of the, the structure of the sentence, so that this was a, a conversation, not just a, a one-statement type of a deal. It was continual conversation. And what Mark does, of course, through the inspiration of the Spirit, gives us the meat of, of that conversation. And he says, some of those who are standing here will, will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God and the reality that it will come, and it will come with power. If you remember earlier in our exposition of the Gospel of Mark, we define the kingdom as, as, as a place, a king, and his people. Pretty simple. You have the king identified in our, in our verses, even leading up to verse 1 of chapter 9, where Peter identifies Jesus as the king. And when Jesus spoke about what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, he's, he's telling us exactly what this people, these, these people that are going to be associated with this kingdom, this is what it means to be a true disciple, my people. We find the people who are his disciples and those who have considered the cost and denied all and desired to follow him, that they are the ones that will inhabit the kingdom of God. In a place, a place where Revelation says that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, a place that is going to be literally where they could stand 
and be in the presence of the king and worship him for eternity, all that will take place. And so with all the pieces of his kingdom in place, all that needs to be done is for the kingdom to be made visible, to be shown. But notice verse 1 says, only some of them who were with him would not taste death until they see it. Now the question you got to ask yourself, why is this important? Why didn't he take all 12 to encourage them? I don't know the answer. I do know this, he took Peter. The ones who went from the heights of saying, yes, I got the answer right to the lows where I got the answer wrong. Of course, James and John and Peter, uh, an inner circle of love, and, and, and no doubt they probably came back and, and shared these things with the other disciples as much as they could. But I think there's some other things going on here. One of the reasons why I think it's important is because this is what all the Jews were longing for. A time where Jew after Jew, they longed to see this coming kingdom of God. We understand that they had a misunderstanding of what that kingdom would look like. They thought it would be an earthly reign in such a way that, that every nation would bow down to Christ or the Messiah. And yet Jesus was talking about an eternal kingdom. They, however, knew that God had promised this, and they all longed to see it. But Jesus said, only some of you standing here will see it. And they will see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So what is Jesus getting at here? Some theologians say that Jesus is speaking here about the promise of the resurrection and the ascension. But that doesn't fit our context. Because the problem is that all of them would see the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Except for Judas. So what is the Lord talking about here? What is the promise that some will see this kingdom power? It's also important to note, as you look into the other synoptic gospels, that would be Matthew and Luke, they all put this promise of some of them will see this kingdom power right before Jesus transfigures. Then we must understand, as Bible students, just taking our hermeneutics, what follows this promise, because of near context, that Jesus is speaking about his transfigurement. And yes, only some of them saw them, saw this kingdom power. So whatever happens at the transfiguration, that is the point where Jesus is going to isolate some and reveal to them the kingdom and its power. Remember all the way back at the beginning of our study in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said in Mark 1.15, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus, we know, went about preaching, and the people were listening that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. 
Jesus was, of course, ordering all these things, drawing it to a place. We know that he's headed to Jerusalem. All these things of his messianic purpose are coming to fruition. And the reason the kingdom of God was at hand is because the king was present. And, of course, the people assembled. And the ones that truly considered the cost, they were to repent and believe in him. And all these pieces were being established. So the question we've got to ask ourselves, in what sense do some of these disciples see the kingdom? And what follows is profound and gives them a glimpse of what is coming, and it gives us hope as well of what the coming glory of this kingdom will look like. And like I said earlier, I think this is such a timely shepherding act by our Lord. Jesus knew that they needed a a pick-me-up. They needed some encouragement. Of course, can you imagine, between the pages of scriptures, I don't know what was going on with with Peter, but I I can imagine just in my own self just getting the, the question wrong about his messianic purpose, no doubt, ate at him. And so what Jesus does is give them divine assurance and hope that he's still in control and that the kingdom is going to happen. But that the cross was a part of the mission. That all this was ordained by God and was going to be put into motion. The first view that we see is this promise, kingdom glory. There's a second view that he we transition to in verses 2 and 3, and that is the unveiling of Christ's coming kingdom glory. Look at verse 2. It reads, six days later. Now, I want to stop there because if you have been looking at any of the other parallel passages of this event, you will notice that Matthew and Luke, they they help us understand this, this passage as a whole. And in reading those accounts, you will notice that that Matthew agrees with Mark and says that six days later. However, Luke says it was eight days later. And the question you got to ask yourself, why the difference in numbers? And this is where our liberal friends will start throwing rocks. See, you can't trust the Bible. Listen, this is not a contradiction. If you know anything about the gospel writers, you know that Luke is such a precise historian that that he he looks at things a different way. Have you guys ever had that situation where you and your wife, you guys were at the same event, same place at the same time, and yet you got different descriptions of what happened? Some of you are laughing, yes. But this is what's going on here. What Luke does... He counts the travel days, not only the day of the promise, but also the day of getting to where they were getting, two. And so he adds two days. Maybe the best way to illustrate this, to help you understand what's going on here, is is to look at these these steps of stairs. If I was to ask you how many steps to the top of the platform, how many would you say? Some of you would say, well, there's two steps, and you're right. However, some of you would say, well, literally, the first step is from the bottom, go up step two, step three, and the four is the top. So you get four steps to the top. 
And some of you would say, I'm not going to count the bottom, but it's one, two, or three. Do you get my point? All those are right, by the way, according to you and how you look at it. I only say that because I got some knucklehead friends who says you can't believe in the Gospels because they contradict each other. Listen, there's no contradiction here, especially when we understand the character and the nature of Jesus. The text goes on to say in verse 2 that he took with him Peter, James, and John, and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, Mark doesn't give us any indication what mountain this is. We know that they're in Caesarea Philippi. We know that there's a mountain range there. The tallest mountain there is Mount Hermon. Most theologians believe that's where this is happening. And here Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, just three of his disciples. And here he is, I think he's doing a shepherding purpose by encouraging Peter. What I love about this is I I just think a lot about how Christ ministers to our souls. It tells me that in our walk of faith, even though we have this roller coaster where we can get some answers right, but often get answers wrong, that Jesus doesn't give up on us. It's just the opposite. Jesus often picks us up and says, get back in the race. Keep on studying. Keep on going after me. Keep your blinders on and keep on following me. It reminds me of a, of a story that kind of illustrates what I'm trying to say here. There's a story that happened from a conversation between two NFL announcers about a famous football player. His name was Walter Payton. Many of you know Walter Payton. Played for the Chicago Bears. And they had this short dialogue. And I think it parallels well in in light of what Peter's doing and and the call for us to pursue Christ. The story goes like this. During a Monday night football game, an announcer observed that Chicago Bears running back, Walter Payton, had accumulated over nine miles in career rushing yardage. Huge feat. The other announcer quickly remarked, yeah, yeah. And that's with somebody knocking him down every four yards. The point is this. A Christian, a born-again believer, may get knocked down by sin every few yards. But he gets back up. And he keeps moving towards the things of righteousness and towards his Lord. Why? Because Christ calls us to finish the race. And do it with such diligence that we're not deterred by our own failures. By the way, beloved, Jesus is not keeping track of your mess-ups. Do you understand that? Yet what he wants us to understand is that he is sufficient. And that he is worthy to get us going in the fight and to keep running the race and keeping our eyes set on him. That is what Jesus is doing here with Peter. 
Won't be the only time that Peter gets a flunking grade on the test. Remember, he denies him three times. And yet Jesus is so kind again in that moment to come back to him and say, you know what, I'm going to make you a shepherd of my sheep. Pretty remarkable when you think about this relationship that Christ has with his people. I call it a grace kiss. I call it one of those things where where God is so kind to, to show up and show his devotional love to continue to exhort us to keep running. So here we are. He's encouraging Peter, James, and John. And now we come in our text to a, an important moment, an amazing moment. The text says that he was transfigured before them. So six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Literally, this is where we get metamorphosis in our English. has the idea of changing from what you were to something else. What speaks about the fact that Jesus was something different in the last little moment, and now as he appears before the three disciples, he has changed. It's an interesting word in the Greek. It, 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 it only appears four times in the New Testament but pretty profound. Let me just give you a couple of them. One of the passages where we see this word, transformation, is in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, where Paul exhorts us. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but, here it is, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. You see what God is calling us when he saves you. He's not asking you to keep on doing the things that you're doing. He's asking you to literally be transformed by the power and the grace of Jesus into something that you once weren't were, into something that's new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are a new creature in Christ. Behold, the old things have, have passed away, and behold, new things have come. And so Paul is simply saying that because you are born again and have this new birth in your life and you're being transformed, live as a holy sacrifice, live as a new creature in Christ. And the way you do that, of course, is by renewing your mind. There's another place in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where Paul gives us another aspect of this transformed nature. He says there, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, being changed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That's the joy of sanctification. That's the joy of the fact of having Christ continually change us into him, Christ-likeness. And literally in that verse, he's saying that we're being changed from, from what we were to what we will be and what we will be for eternity. That God is that continual work within our lives to make us more like him. And what a joy. What a joy. I was trying to help my kids understand that. Shri and I were 
you know, as you get your kids together for events, they always talk about who, how they were raised, right? We have six of them. So we have this lifespan. Right, we got a few of them over here. We got this lifespan. Do we not? Maddie's like, don't talk to me about me, Dad. <clears throat> so I'll look over here, honey. But so we'll sit there. My oldest children think that we were, man, Attila the Hun. We were just evil. We just brought the hammer. And they look at my three youngest, and they look like they got away with everything. And I look at them. I said, and Shree does as well. and says, listen, aren't you glad that your parents have matured from Attila the Hun to a sweet little angel, I guess? I don't know what you want to call us. You wouldn't call us that, would you? No. <laughs> this is what's going on in your Christian life where you're maturing, you're growing in Christ. Now, my older kids did not appreciate that description. I had one child tell a younger child that, listen, you got to serve your time. <laughs> I didn't know what that meant. I guess that meant that they were in prison, that they needed to, to get their time involved in there. But what a beauty. What a beauty to know that Christ transforms us, that Christ is still working within us, Christ is showing us. And back to our text, this is something more glorious than all that. Back to our text, how or what are the effects of Jesus being transfigured? What's going on here? Well, we know in Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, in Luke chapter 9, verse 29, it tells us that Jesus' faith became brilliant. Mark doesn't mention that here. Those two gospel writers tell us that his face was bright. And immediately it echoes back to a situation where Moses heads up to Mount Sinai. And seeing just a glimpse of the glory of God, his face shone so much so that when he came down to the people, the people were saying, listen, your face is so bright, we need to cover it up. And so he literally, I shouldn't say literally, he puts on a headlamp shade to kind of covering But this kingdom is brilliant. It reminds me of what heaven will be where there is no sun, S-U-N, to illumine the place. But the radiance of the glory of the king will be its light. Speaking about what Jesus is going to be in his eternal kingdom. And then Mark says in verse 3 in our passage, And his garments became radiant. And trying to explain this, he says, and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Listen, you understand that they didn't have bleach back then, right? They didn't have the ability to make things white. And so he's describing the reality that this is the whitest as white can be. This is something that is so pure and so, so white, it's bleach white. Her gar his garments were, were the brightest that white can ever be. By the way, so many passages start flooding in my mind when I start seeing this unfold in, in Mark chapter 9. This reminds me of Revelation chapter 1. You can look at the screen where the apostle John gives us a description of Jesus in heaven. It says there in verse 12, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, 
like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, and when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Jesus literally transforms before them, changed right before their eyes. And he gives the three disciples here, Peter, James, and John, a glimpse of what eternal kingdom will look like and what he will be like. He unveils his glory. Two views so far, a promise and an unveiling, leads us to our third view, and that is the witnesses. This is where it kind of gets interesting, because if you look at these things, I mean, I think verse 3 is enough, and we just fall down and we worship, and we understand that Christ is in control. But look at verse 4. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. I mean, they just show up, right? The text doesn't tell us how the disciples knew it was Moses or Elijah, but, but they knew. These are these guys. And the text says that they were talking with Jesus. Now, we don't necessarily know what was going on or what was heard. I think they were talking about the Messianic promise. I think they were talking about what's going to happen. I think they were talking about that everything that Jesus has already told the disciples, that he was going to suffer and die and then rise three days later, all this is coming to fruition But here they appeared before Jesus and the three disciples. And you got to ask yourself a question. Why did Moses, in the Greek, even though Elijah is first in the NASB, the emphasis is more on Moses. Moses showed up along with, with Elijah. But why did Moses and Elijah appear here with Jesus as he gives the disciples a glimpse of his glory in this future kingdom? Well, you have to go back in a little bit into Jewish thought. They understood Moses, always considered him as the prototype of the one who's coming to come, the great prophet, right? We find this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Moses showing up is telling the disciples that this is the great prophet. This is one like me. Moses is saying that there's coming a prophet that God will raise up like me. And he says at the end of verse 15 there, Deuteronomy 18, you shall listen to him. So it makes sense that Moses would be there. Now, what about Elijah? Elijah is the forerunner of the coming Messiah. We know that. He's also received the word of God. We know in 1 Kings chapter 19, both Moses and Elijah, by the way, both had mountaintop experiences, did they not? Here they are on top of Mount Hermon. These guys are there. Past shows us their involvement within the kingdom of God and what God was doing. Both prophesied that God was going to, come, uh, going to give us the anointed one, the Messiah. 
And so they're there. We can speculate what they talked about, but I think it was all an affirmation that Jesus is the one that they need to listen to and to follow. But I think there's something more here. When I was thinking about this, there's something that is just flat out something to think about. And I want you to, to grasp this. Before Jesus' incarnation, before Jesus came and dwelt amongst us in the flesh, before Jesus came to earth, you've got to understand that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah was already having fellowship in heaven. When they came and talked, this wasn't a meet and greet where Moses sticks out his hand and says, Hi, Jesus, I'm, I'm Moses. I mean, just when you think about this reality of what is happening here in the divine providence of God and how it's all fitted together, they already had many years of fellowship. Pretty profound when you think about it. And God giving the grace to allow Peter, James, and John to see all this. And then Peter gets nervous. How do we know that Peter's nervous? Look at verse 6, for he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. And so what does normally Peter does? When he gets nervous, he starts to what? He starts to talk. Maybe much like us. Verse 5, this is what Peter says to Jesus. Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. (laughs) Yes, it's good for you to be there. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In other words, let us build three churches and to celebrate these monumental men of the faith. Peter, it's a time for you to be quiet. Of course, nervous. I think that's a proper response. I think Peter is trying to... to put things into perspective here. He's trying to understand how do I respond to what I'm seeing? And so he responds with a a desire to worship. And he's terrified. And he just spits this out, I think. Now, when I put myself in Peter's shoes, I think that we would be doing the same. I think our mouths would be wide open. I think we'd be catching flies. I think we'd be like, wow. What, what, what do we say here? It's like when we're overwhelmed, when somebody graciously does something for us, whatever, you're just like, I don't know what to say. The witnesses, Moses and Elijah. There's a fourth view and a fourth witness, or a third witness, excuse me, that comes And it leads us to the last view in verses 7 and 8, the affirmation of Christ's kingdom glory. Look at verse 7. It says, Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter responds. Jesus doesn't respond back to him, at least what's inspired for us to understand here. But all this is happening, they're in awe. A cloud forms. Literally, it's a thick fog. That permeates the area. And then the cloud speaks. 
a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Of course, this has to be God the Father. Why do I say that? Because the statement and what the voice says, this is my beloved son. We've already heard that in Jesus' baptism, did we not? And notice that it's different than the baptism in the sense that where Jesus is, or God the Father's talking to Jesus, this is my beloved son. Everybody heard that. This voice is speaking to the three disciples saying, this is my beloved son. Of course, we know this is a messianic title. This is a divine title. The voice is confirming the fact that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the the one that God the Father has sent. Which, by the way, all the way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark starts this gospel out by saying that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God... And then he gives this imperative. Not only is he the Messiah, the anointed one, he says with a command, listen to him. Listen, when God says listen to him, we need to listen. You remember earlier what we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and guess what? You shall listen to him. And by near context, the thing that God wants his disciples to understand is what he said in, in, in what we've been already looking at in the Messianic promise in verse 31 of Mark chapter 8, where Jesus told his purpose. That, and so God is just putting his stamp of approval. This is what he's coming to do. Verse 31 of Mark 8 says that, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Listen, this is the gospel. And what God is affirming to his disciples and even to the world that, listen, the best thing that you need to do is to listen to him. knowing that Jesus was going to be the atonement for sinners, listen to him. Knowing that he is going to one who's going to give grace and mercy and forgiveness, listen to him. The substance of what God is saying is to listen to my anointed one. Listen to why he came and the reason he came. Doesn't mean that you don't listen to all the other truths but understand his purpose. That he came to die for you, to be your atonement, to forgive you of your sins, to give you grace, to resurrect from the grave, to ascend to heaven, and one day come back to back again, right? Listen to him. If you want to boil down your Christian life after you've been saved and redeemed, one truth that you just need to bury and tattoo on your soul is that truth, listen to him. I think too often, 
we run this Christian life in such a way that we listen to everything else but him. And the way that we listen to him, beloved, by reading the scriptures, by knowing what it says, by unfolding and studying what it says, that we can trust this is the inspired word of God, 66 books that contain all the revelation that God wants us to understand and to know. Then verse 8. Just as quick Jesus transfigured, just as quick Moses and Elijah came, just as quick as the cloud came and spoke, verse 8 says, all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus. As quickly as the event starts, it ends. But yet, within that short event, they were blessed to see the coming glory. The coming awesomeness of the fact of what has happened. You look at this passage and in in this narrative, and you're just trying to think through what is my takeaway from all this? And I just love it when God gives us scriptures of how the impact impacted the disciples. Such is the case with Peter. Take your Bibles, I want you to see this with your eyes. Turn forward to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Here's our takeaway as we see it in the life of Peter, who was there, who experienced all this, who was amazed. Starting in verse 16, follow along as I read this. Peter says this, For we do not follow cleverly devised tales, when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is talking about this transfiguration event. He saw the majesty. He was eyewitnesses of this. He experienced this. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, speaking about Jesus, Such an utterance as this was made to him by majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. You talk about an experience. I think the thing, the catchword for today's evangelical church is experiencing God. Peter and those three disciples had the ultimate experience to see heaven open and future shown, glory manifesting itself. He would be the the, the event, he would be the guy that had this ultimate experience, but it doesn't stop there. Why? Because I think Peter understood exactly what the Lord was telling him. Look at verse 19. This leads us to our takeaway here. Peter goes on and says, as much as I had that experience, he says this, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. He's telling us that he's got the prophetic word, the written word, the inspired word, made more sure 
even over his experience. And he's telling us, he says, that, and he goes on there in verse 19, to, to which you do well to pay attention. In other words, listen to him. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, this is the thing. He's not, he's not so much wanting them to remember his experience and what he saw, but he wants them to understand what is important in light of all of this. He says that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter tells us about his, his, his brief and wonderful experience on the mountaintop but he's telling us that there's something greater than that. Something that trumps that experience is he says that the word of God is more sufficient. This is something that he's experienced that Jesus Christ and the revealed word of God is much greater than what he saw. That the scriptures are more sure and that we would do wise to listen to them. It's remarkable. You are holding in your hands the word of God that checks our experiences, that helps us think rightly about our experiences, that helps us understand what, what is everything according to life and godliness. And when God says, listen to him, he's literally saying, read my Bible. Read my Bible. Read my word that I have given to you faithfully, and you will not go astray. You know what is right when you know what is wrong. You know what is holy. You understand exactly what the messianic purpose, why it came. It's all there for you. It's another read your Bible type of exhortation. Simple. Yet how often do we go to the word? How often do we read it? How often do we obey it? It is made more sure, and we would be wise to open it, read it, listen to him, and obey him. Amen? Father, again, thank you for the morning and for the text that's set before us. It really was a miraculous event. I don't know if we would put that in that category when we think about miracles of Jesus, but this was the kindness of our Lord. Jesus, we recognize that. If you wanted to encourage your disciples, you wanted to help them to understand that what, he just said, what you just said, that you're going to the cross to die, that this was all in the Father's plan. Appreciate the fact of your grace with Peter, how he failed often, but yet you continue to strengthen him, continue to encourage him, continue to tell him to get up and run the race. For some of us this morning, we need to hear that. For some of us here this morning, we feel like failures. We have this thought that, what good am I? And yet, Lord, you always drive us back to your truth. And you tell us that we have worth because of the one who has saved us.
the one who has redeemed us, the one who desires that all men would come and repent and believe. So, Lord, encourage those who are faint of heart, knowing that the Lord is not finished with them yet. And that you are ever encouraging us to continue to run this race, that you're ever interceding for us at the right hand of God the Father. Father, may that encouragement cause us to continue to run, knowing that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is cheering us on. Father, for those who are grasping the truth, loving the truth, may you continue to encourage them to run the race. And Father, the reality is that there are some who are outside of the race who need to be engaged, who need to be saved, who need to be transformed. Your word is pretty clear. The simplicity of that is that they need to repent and believe. Repent from their sins and turn to Christ in faith, knowing that he has atoned for their sins. So, Father, I pray that you will allow us to continue to allow this text to saturate our minds and hearts. May we continue to to understand this passage in such a way that that encourages our souls. And so we love you. And we praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand and we'll close in a, in a song. Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word.